going to the bathroom in space, and other routine things in orbit. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. There's a lot about space travel that doesn't get talked about, like how do astronauts shower or go to the bathroom. Retired NASA astronaut Terry Virts is hoping to shed some light on the often unmentioned things about space travel that are uniquely human in his new book, How to Astronaut, An Insider's Guide to Leaving Planet Earth. We'll speak with Virts about the lifetime of training that goes into becoming an astronaut and the lessons we can all learn about space. Then, speaking of toilets, the International Space Station just got a brand new commode. We'll talk with NASA engineer Melissa McKinley about the upgraded toilet and how it will help astronauts on future missions to the moon. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's space station. Terry Virts has spent more than 200 days in space, traveling to the International Space Station on both the space shuttle and Russian Soyuz capsule. His new book, How to Astronaut, An Insider's Guide to Leaving Planet Earth, is a collection of essays that shed light on some of the more routine things about spaceflight, like taking a shower or cleaning the bathroom. Virch joins us now to talk about the book and his time in space. Terry Virch, thanks for speaking with us. Glad to be here. Uh, Terry, let's start with a a pretty simple question, I think. Uh, What was the inspiration behind writing this one? You know, I wanted to make a book that was fun, that was accessible, that could kind of bring the details and the insider's uh, guide, I guess, to everybody. So I wanted to write something that was for men and women, for young and old, that wasn't technical. and I didn't want to write a memoir. Um, So I came up with this idea of having short chapters or short essays about the different aspects of spaceflight. So the the goal for the book was to make people laugh um, and to make them say, wow. The first part of the book kind of chronicles all of the steps it took to get to where you were. And I think one thing that that stood out is just how much training goes into becoming an astronaut and how much waiting goes into becoming an astronaut. Uh, You you mentioned at the start, you know, NASA hired a bunch of astronauts and, and you weren't sure that you were even going to fly, which is why you guys called yourself the bugs, right? Some bugs fly. <laughs> That's right. Hopefully. <laughs> Take me back to that first launch when, when you are flying and you're strapping into, you know, the seat on the shuttle. What was it like? Did you think that you were prepared enough? Had, had you waited long enough for that moment? Well, I had waited a whole lifetime. You know, people always say, how long does it take to train? And the reality is it's a lifetime of training. It started when I was a kid learning how to do photography and I had my own telescope and I learned how to program my TRS-80 computer. So, you know, it's not just the year or year and a half of ASCAN training. <laughs> um, NASA likes to make you feel good about yourself. So you, they call you an ASCAN, um, an, ast- <laughs> an, an astronaut candidate, of course, is what that stands for. So it was a lifetime of waiting. And, and I had been in the office uh, for almost just short of a decade on that first flight. And my whole life, everything I've done, I've been the youngest guy and I've been the first and I've you know, for the first 10 years of my life, I just did everything. I was flying jets in the Air Force at age 21 and was on my fourth or fifth F-16 assignment before I was 30. And so I was always like fast, 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 move, move, move kind of guy. And then all of a sudden it was sit, sit, sit for 10 years. So when I strapped on Endeavor, I was ready. It was like, in the words of LeBron James, it's about time, but not exactly that. But um, it was also nervous because I'd never gone into space before. And, you know, you're flying into an alien environment. And I, the, my main fear was that I would 
I would screw up, you know, that I would make a mistake. So it was really a nervousness about how am I going to do in this thing? Cause I've done everything else, you know, pretty well, but, um, I've never been in a space. So how's it going to go? Did you think you were prepared for that moment? I was as prepared as you can be. I mean, the NASA training is really good. All the people on the ground, you know, are know what they're doing. And I talked to a million, every astronaut, Hey, you know, give me some advice. What did you think of this and that? I was really open for advice, but I'd never been in weightlessness before. I'd never seen the earth before, you know, I'd never done it before. So I was prepared as you could be, but you know, until it has, it's like training for combat. You can go, you know, crawl around under barbed wire and have the sergeant yell at you and they can shoot fake, you know, pop guns at you. But (laughs) first time there's actually somebody on the other side of that hill shooting at you, people don't know how they're going to react. And it was the same way um, going into space. Thankfully it was okay, but it was an amazing, I mean, it was not, it was not just another day at the office. That's for sure. Did you speak to some astronauts before your flight? Some of your colleagues that had been to space before, did they give you some decent advice before going? I I did. I spoke to everybody that I could. And um, one of the best pieces of advice was actually before my second flight, I had never done, I didn't do any spacewalks on the first flight. They didn't let pilots do spacewalks. They, uh, (laughs) they needed the pilot to land the shuttle. So they wouldn't let us go outside. But um, the, uh, I was, I talked to one of the, one of my buddies who had done a bunch of spacewalks and he said, the only, he just was like, ah, you'll do fine. He said, if you're going too fast, or he said, if you're going slow, you're going too fast. Um, and that was great advice. In other words, like you have to move really slowly uh, because that big giant, you know, you're probably four or 500 pounds of spacesuit and equipment attached to your body. And it's really easy to get it moving in weightlessness. In the pool underwater where we do training, it's really, really difficult to get it moving because you're having to displace water. Um, it's Archimedes principle, right? Pushing 400 pounds of water requires a lot of muscle. And as soon as you let go, you come to a stop. Um, stopping is really easy. In space, it's the exact opposite. It's super easy to get moving, but you will never stop unless you use your muscles to stop yourself. So that advice, if you're going slow, you're going too fast, was really helpful. What advice did you give to uh, on your, your follow-up flights to other astronauts around you? What, what have to you rookies, learned yeah. that you, to the rookies, what, what have you told them? Probably the best thing I did. Um, I took 20 minutes when I was on Endeavor and I just went around with a camcorder and filmed, okay, this is the bathroom. This is how you use it. This is the food. You're going to, your food's going to be here. This is how you're going to, you know, this is how you make some food. This is how you get, change the water filter. This is where your sleeping bag is. This is where you clip it on. Cause you have classes on all that stuff you, you don't integrate it in your brain. Like you don't know, okay, this is here and this is there. And so I just kind of went around and told them the daily life things of space. Um, that was, you know, probably, and, and the, the people that flew after me were the last rookies to fly on the shuttle because the shuttle program short, shut down shortly after that. And everybody else wasn't a rookie after those guys. Um, and then for the long duration missions, the, I think the best piece of advice I gave uh, that, I I don't know if anybody listened to it or not, but it was, especially if you're going to be the commander, you need to be a little bit lazy because if you're this go getter uptight guy that everything has to be perfect, you're going to make everybody's life miserable, especially those on earth, like the mission control, the station has been there for a decade. It's going to be there for another decade. Um, 
they don't need to change this massive multi-billion dollar international bureaucracy just because you want this or you want that. So sometimes it's better to just sit back and let things happen. Um, you know, change the super important thing, the things that need to get done, get done. But if you could, if you can just sit back and let the bureaucracy roll on, <laughs> it makes everybody's life easier. In the book, you go into great detail about your training, as I mentioned, uh, the ride up, getting to space, those those few moments. But I think what's really interesting about this book is is you detail many of the daily things that astronauts have to do, like getting dressed, cleaning, um, <laughs> using the toilet. Um, and the toilet you write in the book was was a thing of pride for you on on that first mission. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering if you can share with us a bit of the, of, of that well, I experience. So the space shuttle. Um, you know, had its own toilet and it was the pilot's job to take care of it. So, you know, the pilot is really the co-pilot and the commander is like the captain. If you, if you use the airline analogy. So the pilot, since he's usually the rookie and he's the new guy and he's a pilot. So people look up to him, but you know, you got to keep him in his place. So the pilot's job is to take care of the toilet. So I had, I ordered all the wipes and huggies and all the stuff that we'd need. And, um, it normally like you just use it, use it, use it. And then every couple of days, the pilot will go down there and clean it. But I, I basically clean it every time. And I was like, man, you could eat off this thing. This is the best toilet in the history of the space shuttle program. <laughs> and when we were leaving, I had ordered just a ridiculous amount of wipes. And the good thing about the space shuttle is you could carry a lot of stuff. The Soyuz, there was no room in it. Um, and so we left this, like just think of a hamper it was a hamper size full of disinfectant wipes and tissue paper and stuff like that we left it behind for the guys on the station and some of my shuttle crewmates and I are still laughing about how much stuff I brought to clean the toilet but man that was a good that was a good toilet <laughs> but I'm glad I'm glad you noticed this. this this makes me happy that um there's a lot of just mundane stuff there's a lot of work you have to do is an astronaut in the book. There's also some sublime, like, wow, kind of moments. And then there's some not good things, you know, some bad stuff happen. And there, so I, I really did try to make, you know, it's happy and funny and sad and angry and wow, kind of, you know, I didn't just want to put the typical NASA gloss that everything's perfect um, on it, but it was still pretty cool. That, I'm, I'm glad you noticed that. I heard you say that earlier. Yeah. There's, there's a line in the book that really stuck out. Um, enough that I wrote it down here in, in my questions here for you. And it's quote, uh, not every detail of an astronaut's life is glorious. Some details are downright mundane, in fact, but at the end of the day, these are the stories that make us human. And I thought that was a really interesting line and a really interesting perspective. And, and it pretty much gives perspective to the entire book. So, so I'm going to ask you, Terry, like, what do you hope comes from the sharing of these stories? What do you want folks to take away uh, from the downright mundane of space travel. So, you know, on the one hand, I just hope people enjoy it because because space is cool, <laughs> and, and people all around the planet love space uh, because it's it's just cool. Um, but on the other hand, I hope that there there are some deeper meanings here. You know, I, I talk about. Um, I think there's a chapter something like God and aliens and other mundane things or something like that. Um, and at the end of the day, there's no plan B. All we have is earth and we're all stuck here together. Uh, so we need to figure out how to live together better than we have been because, um, there's a lot of really disturbing things happening down here on the planet. And, and, and 
we kind of need the whole world, I think needs to change course. And so this isn't a political book in any stretch, but I hope people get that sense of, you know, we're all in this thing together so that we can start to point the ship in the right direction down here on the planet. You, you mentioned that space is cool, but another thing that I took away from this book is that space is hard. And mm-hmm. a lot of the challenges you outlined that, that you had to deal with, you mentioned just how difficult it would be to kind of do a long duration mission. You, you talk about the toilet and, you know, if a toilet were to break on a long duration mission to say Mars, that could kill the crew. Yeah. I'm wondering what your outlook is for long duration missions. Are, are we ready for that yet? Uh, well, I mean, my last flight was 200 days. So, you know, we've had Americans up there for 340. The Russians have had people up there for 440 days. Uh, so we're already doing long duration missions. The, the problem, well, not the problem, the difference between what we're doing now and what we'll need for Mars and beyond is we have cargo ships coming every month or two. Um, and if there's a problem, we jump in the Soyuz or, or the Boeing or the SpaceX and come back to Earth in a couple hours. Um, and you can't do that when you go other places. So uh, I think that doesn't mean it can't be done. It's just a hard thing that you have to plan for, which, of course, we all know. So we can do those things. Um, the the biggest problem, and I think I make this point in the book, is not the problem is not the rocket science. The problem is the political science. And by that, I mean, it's just hard in America because we have these things called elections and half the politicians hate the other half of the politicians that no one wants to keep, you know, the same course going for more than four or eight years. So that's the that's the struggle um, to to get along mission going, I think, as much as the technical stuff. And there are like for Mars, there are some real technical problems. If we just use a normal chemical rocket, it's a three-year round trip because it's not fast enough. Um, If we develop some new propulsion, it's called electric propulsion, um, which we use on satellites all the time. I'm working with a company that is, does that for their job, (laughs) their day job. But in order to scale it up for people, you could get there to Mars and back in one year. And I think that's a lot more doable. I think three years is just too long. That's a lot of food and spare parts and underwear to pack for three years. That's a lot. <laughs> and do you think they'd be able to keep the toilet as clean as you did? No way. No way. <laughs> I, didn't, I don't think anyone could anyway, even on the space shuttle. <laughs> so so what do you think? Um, I mean, aside from those things, you know, it, it's also um, a mission to Mars is going to have to be international as well. I mean, the International Space Station was built with, you know, more than one country, more than one agency. You know, is there the right. global political buy-in for, for Mars trip two? And does that pose a challenge? I don't, I don't know that necessarily has to be, but I think it should be. And here's the other thing. The, the reality is this, we, our debt was too big before. And now with COVID, it's just massively expanded, you know, by amounts that make it higher than even during world war two. And it's not good. We're not going to pay it down the way we did after world war two. So, um, the discretionary spending in the American government budget is, is only getting worse. It's not going to get any better in the coming decades. So I think if we can find international partners and have their participation be efficient and, you know, cost saving, then that would be really good. Plus, we're sending humans to Mars, you know, is would be the goal for the planet, not just Americans. Um, and in an even bigger thing, and I, I, I think I made this point in the book, um, the only reason the International Space Station exists is because it was an international space station. There was a famous vote in Congress, I think it was in 93, 
uh, where it passed the house by one vote. And had it not been an international, you know, treaty kind of, uh, program, it, it wouldn't have passed. If it was just American, it would be very easy to kill it. But when it's international, it becomes a little bit hard. Well, <laughs> until a few years ago, it was hard to kill international things. Um, so that it brings a little bit of political stability by making an international program. And I think beyond all the technical challenges, that international aspect or the, the political aspect is the most challenging. We're now living in the age where regular people, not just highly trained astronauts, can and will go into space. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the new chapter of, you know, space tourism and, and the likes of someone like, you know, Tom Cruise getting a chance to to go to the International Space Station. Right. I mean, finally, regular people like Tom Cruise get to go as opposed to me. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, I always laugh when people say, when can normal people go to space? I'm like, well, clearly normal people haven't been to space because <laughs> I was born into the Royal family of astronauts. And I knew I'd be an astronaut since I was a kid, but you're right. in that, um, especially the suborbital companies like Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin both have, um, these suborbital flights, a quick five minute, you know, you go up, you're in space, you look around, see the earth, you float. Uh, and then a few minutes later, you're back, you just come right back down. Like what Alan Shepard did the first American in space. Um, and it's going to be expensive. You know, I don't know what the blue origin ticket price is, but it'll probably be a hundred thousand or a couple hundred thousand dollars. Um, but that's in reach for some number of people, right? Like a 20 million or $50 million ticket to the ISS is not, (laughs) but you know, if you have a middle-class job and you save up, you could get, you could put together a couple hundred thousand dollars. So I hope in the coming years that lots of people get to experience it. And I think that'll be good for society. The more people that go to space, the more people that see earth from that perspective, the better off we'll all be. Finally, Terry, uh, what's next? What do you see as the next big leap for for space exploration? Well, um, for human exploration, um, I I think the moon is going to be next. And I hope it is because as a test pilot, um, we learned the build-up approach. So you you start small, you go step-by-step, and eventually you get to, you know, the big goal. And the moon is a great stepping stone and a great build-up place for a training ground to eventually move on to Mars. So I hope that's the human goal. That's NASA's plan is to send people to Mars. And um, I hope that does happen. I'm, I'm sorry, to the moon first. And I hope that does happen. But, um, you, you know, the part of NASA that really excites me, to be honest, is the robotic part. Um, you know, Voyager as a kid was just the coolest thing ever. I waited every month. I was waiting by the mailbox to get my copy of Astronomy Magazine and Sky and Telescope Magazine to read about Voyager. Um, you know, we have these probes on Mars that are doing amazing things. Uh, there's a couple of really cool missions in the works to maybe go to one of the moons of Jupiter, um, or even Saturn. Um, now maybe Venus, you know, we've discovered this, uh, phosphine chemical in the atmosphere there. So I think the robotic stuff that NASA is doing is in some ways even cooler than what the human side is. So I, I like that part too. We've been speaking with retired NASA astronaut and International Space Station Commander Terry Virts. His new book is called How to Astronaut, An Insider's Guide to Leaving Planet Earth. Terry, thanks so much for speaking with us. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Still to come, what's new on the next Space Toilet? Are We There Yet? is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? I'm Brendan Byrne. 
The International Space Station just got a brand new commode. An upgraded universal waste management system hitched a ride to the station on Northrop Grumman Antares rocket earlier this month. NASA engineer Melissa McKinley is the project manager for the new toilet. She joins us now to talk about the upgraded hardware and how it will help astronauts on future missions to the moon. So the Universal Waste Management System builds on designs uh, from other toilets previously used in, in space flight. So a lot of the components are, are building on that, that those previous successes. Um, but in order to provide a toilet for exploration missions, the, the project is looking to optimize mass and volume and power usage um, for obvious reasons, because spacecrafts uh, have a, a, a real concern with, with mass and volume. Mass is important as far as uh, uh, the ascent of the spacecraft and volume is the space the space capsules are very small and use of of the toilet area takes up a lot of space on a spacecraft and we want to get that as as usable as possible but minimize it where we can so this is kind of um trying to figure out the best way to build a a smaller yet functioning toilet for missions to like the moon or mars or something like that right Smaller, lighter, um, but also to optimize the the usability of the system to make it more uh, easy to use for the crew, in particular for the female crew members. The the design of the systems really worked on the female crew's experience. Um, the NASA did a lot of work with uh, crew evaluations with the crew members to look at the commode seat and the urine funnel um, to help the female crew members use it more easily and more comfortably. Um, for for anatomical differences that that are obvious between males and females, um, specifically during uh, dual ops because of the alignment issues, that the, the use of the funnel, um, the size, the length, the shape, all those things were were looked at to help make them more appropriate for the female anatomy. And dual op is when you're using it for for both functions, right? Number one and number two, <laughs> or defecation and, and urination. What are some of the other changes? Because th- it's been a while since um, this has been upgraded, right? Do you know when the last um, the last design was implemented, and and what are some of the major differences um, aside from some of those anatomical changes that you mentioned? Um, so the current toilet in use on space station is is the Russian toilet in in Node Three, the WHC, the uh, Waste and Hygiene Compartment. Um, the last U.S. toilet was on Shuttle EDO program. Um, and it was significantly larger. Um, it was a big, big block of uh, equipment in order to do this function. The Russian toilet on Space Station now, um, it looks small when you see it in some of the videos, but what you don't realize is that a lot of the support equipment is behind um, the rack. It's not visible. So this toilet is significantly uh, uh, reduced. Um, it's 65% smaller and 40% lighter than that Russian toilet. Um, so, so the primary difference between the last U.S. toilet, the EDO toilet, is uh, reducing the size. And, and to do that, um, we used a lot of the same technology, uh, which is using airflow to entrain the uh, fecal material and the urine um, to help guide it into the toilet for collection. Um, but it was they were able to combine a two-fan, two-motor system into a dual-fan system. Um, so there's actually a gearbox that, that uses one one um, system for both of those functions. Um, so you reduce that by half. You had had almost half as much 
um, equipment needed because of the, the this dual fan separator design that that Collins has has brought with the with the toilet. So this this is obviously you're going to use it to, to kind of figure out how to design you know smaller and, and, and better for for deep space exploration. But, but will this also be used full time on on the station? It will. Um, we're doing a technical technical technology demonstration um, period uh, as part of this contract um, for the first three months or so um, where we've asked the crew on ISS to use it as the primary toilet. They'll still have to use the existing toilet uh, once a day or so just to keep it functional, but we want them to use our toilet uh, as much as possible so we can get a really good test of it. Um, And then once that period's over, Space Station is doing a much longer Uh, demonstration for three years and it will become just part of the normal usage on station. Um, Station is really um, excited to get this up there because the crew size is is going up as commercial crew comes in um, and they want to make sure that we have adequate facilities to support that crew size. How does how will this incorporate with the um, uh, the recycling system on the station? Are there plans to hook it up to to the loop system that's there to kind of um, do some liquid reclamation and, and, and reuse that? Absolutely. Um, it's it's going to be used in a similar fashion to what's there now. Uh, the, the UWMS, the, the toilet, um, collects the urine, um, and but it doesn't store it. it. It's directed out of the toilet. It's pumped out uh, downstream to the existing shuttle, uh, excuse me, the existing uh, station systems that you mentioned, the, the urine processor assembly um, and, and the other systems. So it, it, it'll be used very similarly to what's there now. The, the, there's a little bit of difference in some of the treatment systems, um, but it's, it's going to tie in exactly as, as the other system did. And, and how will, like, what, what's kind of the workflow process for taking the data from this testing on the International Space Station, and then how is that fed into the design of, let's say, the the Orion waste management system. How is that kind of working together and, and flowing into, you know, getting ready for Artemis II, which is, you know, just a few years from now? Uh, that's a good question. Um, so this contract actually included delivery of two units. The Unit 1, which is the ISS un- unit, will actually fly first. Um, but the Unit 2, which is for Orion, was actually delivered first. It was actually delivered back in December. Um, for flight on on Artemis II. It hasn't been installed in the vehicle yet. Um, So the unit is built. Um, What we're hoping to learn uh, on ISS that will impact Orion is is the the usability, is uh, how are consumables used? How does does the function of the toilet uh, need to be done differently? Um, what what's the life of some of the components that's that so far has been theoretical or analyze, uh, analysis or calculated, but we'll get some very real data on how long does the filter that controls odors, how long does that last? So why that's important to Orion is that informs them on how much they need to carry onto their missions. So can they can they go for a 10 day mission with only one of those filters or do they need to consider uh, manifesting additional units. So so with very real data coming out of the ISS uh, will help us to, to be better prepared for Orion. That was NASA's Melissa McKinley talking about the new toilet on the International Space Station. That's going to do it for this week's show, but stay listening. Next week, we're diving into the world of aliens. What will life outside our planet look like? And how has pop culture shaped our views on extraterrestrials? We've got lots of ways for you to stay connected to our show. Give us a follow on Twitter. We're at A-W-T-Y Space. You can also now find us on Instagram with that same handle. It's A-W-T-Y Space. 
and we're on Facebook if that's your thing. Just search for Are We There Yet podcast. Are We There Yet is a production of WMFE, America's space station. Editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty. The show's intern is Nelly Ontiveros. Our director of content is Steve Yasko. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. And until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.